Oh, we're continuing uh, the summer series in the Apostles' Creed. We're actually heading down the metaphorical home stretch. Uh, I would encourage you to double back and listen to the previous sermons uh, in this series if you have an appetite for above average preaching. Is that right, brother? <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. Trust me. Trust me. Today we're considering what the Apostles' Creed has to say about the church in the Apostles' Creed as a subsidiary affirmation of our belief in the Holy Spirit. We also affirm our belief in the, quote, Holy Catholic Church, comma, the communion of saints, close quote. That reminds me of a poignant story about two fellows on a high bridge. I will tell the story in the first person strictly for optimal rhetorical impact. (laughs) Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? (laughs) He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too, northern conservative Baptist or northern liberal Baptist? He said, northern conservative Baptist. I said, me too, northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or northern conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. That's not a true story, I hope. That, that joke was written by a great comedian uh, named Emo Phillips, uh, who has given us a few other uh, good uh, uh, religious-oriented jokes. Uh, my personal favorite being uh, where Emo says, I'm not a Catholic, but I gave up picking my belly button for Lent. So I'm going to go out on a limb here today and assume that most of you are not Catholic as that term is typically used. And I will further speculate that at least a few of you do not regard yourselves and your fellow churchgoers as particularly holy as that term is typically used. So what exactly do we mean? 
when we say we believe in the, quote, holy Catholic church. The word Catholic comes to us from a Greek word that means all-encompassing. It refers to a coherent integral whole, W-H-O-L-E, rather than a fragmented part. In Texan, we would translate that term as the whole enchilada. When we say we believe in the Catholic Church, we are not pledging allegiance to a particular ecclesiastical institution or a denomination. Rather, we are saying that we believe in a church that comprises every human being who ever has said yes by grace through faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saying we believe God has established and is building a church without geographic, ethnic, linguistic, or even temporal limits. That's what we're saying. Now, we say that, but is there any evidence to support a belief in such a church? I am a highly credentialed, professionally trained and generally celebrated trial lawyer with above average skills when it comes to argumentation. You'll just have to look it up on the internet if you don't trust what I'm saying uh, here from this uh, uh, particular contraption. And as a trained advocate, I am quite confident that I can make a strong evidence-based argument for the existence of God as creator. And I know for a fact I can make a strong evidence-based argument for the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I'm quite confident that I can make a strong evidence-based argument for the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. But it seems to me that most of the evidence from church history, up to and including today, does not support what the Apostles' Creed says about the church. In fact, one of the most compelling arguments against the Christian faith may be the disunity, often marked by extended seasons of violent conflict between and among self-described Christians. Nevertheless, I believe in the, quote, holy Catholic Church, comma, the communion of saints for a simple reason. The Bible tells me so. So with that preface, let's do a quick crash course on biblical ecclesiology. I have... Uh, initially had an outline of 47 points, each point having no less than 11 subpoints. But as a sign of my compassion for you, I've distilled this down to four points, <clears throat> each one having 100 subpoints. <clears throat> no, just four, four things I want to say about this before we dive into our text uh, in earnest. First point, the church starts with Jesus and a ragtag collection of knuckleheads. The seminal moment is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where 
Jesus says to one particular knucklehead, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church. So our English word church is a suboptimal translation of a loaded Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia uh, refers to ordinary people who were called out of their mundane task for a highly consequential mission. The earliest extant uh, usage of this in the Greek literature of antiquity refers to those citizens of a city who become the ecclesia when they are called out to fight and defend the city. A highly consequential mission. So Jesus uh, uh, is using this term. Uh, he's using it quite intentionally, and this became a very uh, important term uh, in the church's understanding, of the early Christians' understanding of what they are. Uh, they are a people called out for a consequential mission. The people of the church are called saints. And the Greek word for this is agioi. And they're called saints because they've been set apart. And the Greek word for this is agiazo. Set apart for God's mission. You will uh, look uh, long and hard to find an example in the New Testament of the word saint being used in the singular. Hagioi, or it's us together, called out together for a mission. That's the church. Second point. The mission of the church is to storm the gates of Hades, which is the realm of the dead, with the good news that death has been defeated so human beings can know love that lasts forever. In other words... Our mission, should we decide to accept it, is to tell people what they desperately want and need to hear in the deepest parts of their hearts. Our message is that love lasts because the eternal God is love. Our message is that death does not have the last word because Jesus conquered death in the resurrection. Our message is that the grievous loss we feel when a loved one dies is not the end of the story because we know there will be a joyful reunion in eternity. This is exactly the deepest longing of the human heart and this is the message we get to share so why are we so quiet about it so often? So I was a Young Life leader for many, many decades. And uh, one of of my uh, tasks, which I thought I excelled at uh, in Young Life, was to lead the singing on a Monday night. So you can picture picture me uh, trying to coax and entice a bunch of high school uh, aged uh, young people into singing some corny song or another. Now, one of the songs that was a go-to song back uh, at a certain point in time in Young Life was a 
I guess you might consider it a cheesy country song if you're one of those elitists, like many of you are. Uh, There's a song, a hit for Michael Martin Murphy, a great Texan, called What's Forever For? Do you remember that song? Remember that song? Well, so that song has a message. And so I loved it in young life when I could get kids to engage with a very deep thought uh, in a semi-popular song. Uh, so the, uh, the basic thrust of the song is, you know, what's the glory in living? Right? What's the glory in living uh, if people never stay together anymore? Right? What's the glory in living if love ends? That's, that's the question the song's asking. If love never lasts forever, what's forever for? Do you realize we've now raised multiple generations of young people in this country who have been indoctrinated in a message, uh, so-called following the science, which is that there is nothing beyond this life, that there is no purpose, rhyme, or reason to their very existence, that they are the chance byproduct of some haphazard of freak chemical reaction in a primordial soup that's undergone a series of still inexplicable mutations and that they're destined to be nothing more than food for worms. This is what we're teaching our high school kids. Do we wonder why they're in despair? Because the human heart is longing to hear that love lasts, that there's meaning that transcends this physical existence. That's the good news we get to share as a church. This is what God's given us to talk about and to demonstrate. So the the theology behind this is really quite simple. God created us for loving relationships that do not end. That's what he created us for. And the desire for that kind of deep interpersonal forever connection persist in the human heart, even though we've fallen away. And even though we are indoctrinated in a way of, in a, in a perspective that says there's nothing that lasts ultimately behind this life and the meaning you somehow managed to create out of your own meaningless life, we've got this good news. The great preacher in Ecclesiastes says, when he talks, uh, he's just talking with some uh, a re- harsh, pragmatic reality about our existence as time-bound mortals uh, destined to die. But he says, but God has planted eternity in our hearts. That's the deep longing of the human heart that the gospel answers. So this, the, 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 the theological word for this deep longing, what we are created for, what we long for, what we crave, what the gospel answers is this, is this fantastic Greek word koinonia, which defies English translation. Our, our translations fall so pathetically short. Uh, the closest uh, uh, English word to this would be communion, but we've religiousized that word in such a way that it's almost become useless. Uh, so I don't know what we do with this, but I can tell you the deepest longing of the human heart is for koinonia. And koinonia is exactly what God created us for. And koinonia is exactly what the gospel offers, the gospel that's entrusted to the church. That is why Jesus prayed for us that we would be one. 
together as his followers, as he and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit exist through all eternity in a loving relationship. And we're created not just to know about that loving relationship, but to participate in the eternal loving relationship of the Holy Trinity, koinonia. That's why John could write in his first letter about the deep uh, koinonia that we have with one another because our koinonia is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So point three, the church fulfills its mission by being the presence of the future, by grace through faith. That's a phrase I stole from a great New Testament scholar, uh, George Eldon Ladd. What does it mean, present to the future? In our reading today from Matthew 5, Jesus uses the metaphors of salt, light, and a city set on a hill to show us that the church exists as a visible community to bless an often hostile world by offering a foretaste of the koinonia of God's kingdom. So when people see the church, Jesus said, by design, they are getting a foretaste, a sneak preview, the trailer, as it were, to the full realization of the kingdom of God, the koinonia that we're created for, should be on display in the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5 in its entirety, and we read Uh, just up through verse 16, but the entire chapter spells out what this koinonia looks like in practical terms within a community of people who are radically committed to Jesus. Koinonia starts with this uh, humility that recognizes that we're poor in spirit. And koinonia progresses through uh, a series of uh, teachings from Jesus that tell us uh, how we ought to react even to those uh, who would take from us, even to those who persecute us, even to those uh, who hit us, even to those who hate us. That koinonia in the church should look like God, who in Jesus Christ was loving His enemies on the cross. So the church ceases to be the church when it starts to participate in the power dynamics of the bogus world system and we're fighting back with the weapons of the bogus world system to hold on to some piece of turf that we shouldn't care about in the first place. Now that's a tall order. To imitate the all-encompassing love that God has demonstrated to us in Jesus, which is what Jesus means in Matthew 5:48 when he says, "You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." How can we possibly do that? Well, the answer is, we cannot possibly do that. Which brings me to my fourth point. The church can only fulfill its mission. By being full of the Holy Spirit. Which by definition means we cannot be full of ourselves. We cannot be full of ourselves. And we are full of ourselves. 
So, I'm not managing the clock well again today. I apologize. How about looking at the Bible with me? Would you mind? Um, I'm going to put up on the board just briefly uh, my own crude translation of a uh, passage uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 10, but you have to understand the context here. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at the very first verse, uh, uh, Paul spells out uh, this uh, devastating indictment on the human race. Apart from and before the intervention of the grace of God. We're in this terrible predicament. Uh, of our own making. And then, of course, we get to Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, which give us the amazing news uh, that God has intervened in Jesus to rescue us, uh, but our rescue is not affected by anything that we can do. It's by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Then we get to the mission statement of the church, Uh, In Ephesians 2.10. And this, uh, again, there's a Greek word that just doesn't quite get translated correctly. And I don't have a better idea uh, than what your Bibles typically do. But here's what what Paul says. We are his poema. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. So this is who we are. This is who we are together as a church. Now, a little coaching point. Uh, A lot of us uh, misread Paul's letters. Uh, In Paul's letters, invariably, when he's talking about you, he's using the plural. It would be translated as y'all in Texas. We tend to read Paul's letters hyper-individualistically, and we miss often the point of the letter. He's addressing a church, a coherent body, the whole enchilada of people who come together as followers of Jesus. So, you know, I don't want you thinking you are God's poema standing alone. You're pretty great. But we are his poema together. And poema from which we get the English word poem. How about that? That's good, right? So I don't like it when we say we are his workmanship, because that sounds a little more pedestrian uh, than a poem. I mean, I would, I would translate this more like uh, what Paul is saying is, we are his magnum opus. We're his masterpiece. By grace, we are his masterpiece. We're a masterpiece called to a mission. So, uh, Paul spells that out. He, he talks about good works, and in the rest of the chapter, he unpacks a little bit of what it means to be the church. I'll have to run through this very quickly, uh, because he uses language repeatedly uh, that uh, is co- koinonia, communion language. He uses language to show that the church fulfills its mission by being together. By being together, by not letting uh, those points of division 
that are lines of demarcation and hostility in the bogus world system define us. There can be no identity politics in the church. Because remember, the church is that communion, that koinonia that obliterates, obliterates the the distinction once thought to be unalterable between Jew, Jew and Gentile. And then Paul goes further in Galatians 3.28. He says, in Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. And then he really gets audacious, male or female. Now, Paul is not denying the reality of biological sex. Paul was not that postmodern. Yes, our biological sexual distinctions uh, continue, but in the church, there is no status differential based on those things that were used to demarcate status and power in the bogus world system. That's a dynamic, revolutionary ethic of koinonia. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is what the church should be, this is what the world should be seeing when it sees a church. Hmm. You know, Paul goes further. In Colossians, he pushes the envelope even further. Colossians 3, uh, he throws in there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. Then he does something, uh, <clears throat> something crazy. He says, no Scythian or barbarian. What the heck? There are no Scythians or barbarians around here, Right? Well, what is he talking about? This shows how far Paul was going with the koinonia, the unity of the church. He's saying that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, because of the victory of Christ on the cross, because of the resurrection, because we're participating in the new humanity that God is forming, because we're the foretaste of the kingdom of God, then when the world looks at us, they should see none of the lines of division or the points of hostility or status differential that have always and everywhere, not just in Europe, not just in the West, don't believe the phony history people are trying to force feed. If you don't think there were status distinctions under Genghis Khan, you don't think there was colonial, colonialization going on in Asia? Good grief. Don't get me off on that. I'm running out of time. Here's the point. Here's the point. What, what Jesus is praying for, you got, Jesus has two unanswered prayers. He prayed in Gethsemane, let this cup pass. And then he has to say, your will and not mine. He prayed in his last high priestly prayer that we might be one. And this isn't one where, this isn't one of those where his will somehow needed to be reconciled with the Father's will, if that ever happened. This is the will of God that we're one. But it's a practical matter. More often than not, in the history of the church, we have not been. So what do we do with the data of Scripture? This is that tension. Uh, You know this tension in your individual life. We know this tension in our collective life. Uh, The tension between, with the gap between what we ought to be and what we are. Uh, 
There is never room for complacency. Uh, but in God's, uh, <clears throat> because of God's grace, there is never room for despair. Uh, <clears throat> but there's always a chance to do a little bit better tomorrow than we did today. Right? There's a, better, there's a chance to do better this afternoon than we've done so far this morning. Thinking about how the reality of the church becomes manifested in this little congregation in the heights. I need to uh, figure out a way to land this uh, leaky single-engine Cessna of a sermon. So <clears throat> I'm going to do what all desperate preachers do. Uh, I'm going to turn to Monty Python. So, <clears throat> so there's, a <clears throat> there's this great passage. Uh, this, is the, this is the ultimate communion of saints passage in the New Testament, it seems to me, which is the reference uh, to the the metaphor of the race, that we are called to run this race together, uh, uh, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And we're running this race, not like the Olympics uh, now where there's no fans, but the race that we're running uh, for the kingdom of God. Uh, There's a great cloud of witnesses. Those are all the saints. All of God's people are intensely interested in how we are running the race today. So this is the This is an amazing passage. This is where we learn that the church uh, even defies temporal uh, division. Uh, We are one people. We're one body built on the apostles uh, and the prophets. And we are heirs to the good and the bad that's gone before. Uh, But when I saw this video for the first time, I immediately was doing theological reflection. Because the video you're about to see... uh, is Monty Python's uh, dramatic depiction of a marathon for people with incredibly weak bladders. Let's run it. I've I've turned the volume down because I don't trust these guys and what they might say. So we're going to get the starting gun here. Uh, that's, that's probably enough. The video goes on. It gets funnier even. But, I mean, uh, we've made our point. Look, I think looking at the history of the church from strictly the human vantage point, without the eyes of faith, this is really what I think I see in terms of how the race, how we've run this race since Jesus was kind enough to hand us the baton. Uh, but there's another perspective on the church. This is the perspective taking the long-term view. This is, that's just in the moment. Taking the long-term perspective over time. And this is a perspective of faith. And so for this, we're going to go to one of the great uh, uh, football plays of all time, uh, which was actually done by one of the great college football powerhouses of all time, uh, my own Trinity University. So let's look at this play, and I'll explain what I mean. They have to score on this play or the game's over. Barmore's got three wide receivers to his left and two to the right. He takes the snap. There's only three men rushing for Millsaps. Barmore throws it over the middle, complete to Thompson. Thompson looking for a block. He laterals it to Curry, and Curry laterals it again, and it's caught again. And Tomlin now on the lateral, and now the lateral to Thompson, and he laterals it back to Maddox on the other side. Maddox looking for a block. He fakes the 
Fakes the lateral to Curry. Now he laterals it to Curry. Curry's at the 49-yard line. He's dancing around. He throws it back now to Maddox, who throws it across the field to Barmore. Barmore looking to run. He's looking for a block. He's got a convoy. He's going to throw it to Thompson. Thompson's at the 30-yard line. Thompson now laterals it back to Curry at the 35. They're running out of spaces. Curry fakes. He's going to lateral it to Tomlin. Tomlin's got a chance to go. Tomlin's got a chance to go. He laterals it. Now he's going to go to Maddox. Maddox at the 30-yard line, and now it's a lateral, and Curry's still going. No way. Curry's no still going. He's 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 going. Uh, with any kind of elegance or precision. That was, that was chaos. But let's just imagine metaphorically, that's the church throughout history. The gospel, this precious message we have that meets the deepest needs of the human heart. That's the football. And somehow, God gets us into the end zone. But there's still another perspective on the church. And I wish I could show this whole video. It's like four and a half minutes. We'll just, show, we'll just show a taste just to give you enough. And you watch the rest on your own. And I can't watch this one without crying. I think this is the church that will ultimately be revealed. And it's not, it's not the structures. It's not even the great theologians. It's not the, it's not the great arguments and divisions When we finally get to heaven and all the curtains are pulled back, all of the big shots in the history of the church will just be regular guys. And the heroes of the church, the heroes of the church will be the people, you may be one of them, but people we've never heard of, you will never hear of, quietly doing gospel acts of kindness and compassion and boldly standing for Jesus wherever they go. And this has happened throughout history. Not the headlines. I mean, I, I could embarrass a brother here uh, with the way he blessed my family. Simply by the way he ran a valet service at Texas Children's Hospital. This is the, what the church will finally be. And the big shots aren't making this happen. It's the Holy Spirit working in groups of people who come together for the love of God and operate in quiet, effectual ways. Here's what heaven will reveal as the church. This is in a food court somewhere.
goes on. I mean, by the end of it, everybody in a sad food court, because if you're in a mall food court, I mean, just things are not going your way, right? <laughs> They're all praising God. This, this, is what, this, is, this is the story that'll be told. This is Revelation uh, chapter 5. Uh, so today, in this sad food court of a world <laughs> that we live in, think of the way that you and a few friends can make an impact as a church. Amen.